Hey, everybody. I'm sure I'm not alone in hoping that 2022 is different than 2021, whether we wishfully imagine it as kinder or easier, more creative or more just. And in that spirit of turning over a new leaf, I'm happy to introduce something that is tangibly new and exciting for the show, a new series one that will air monthly this year called Crafting with Ursula. Le Guin still to this day is the only writer who's been on the show three times, once to discuss fiction, once poetry, and once nonfiction, where I said to her at the end of our third conversation, the one we had in the upstairs reading room of her house, that I couldn't imagine another writer where I could have three in-depth conversations one in all three genres, a writer who had written continuously in all three for nearly a half century each. A comment that prompted her to propose we make them into a book, and which served as the beginning point of our book together, Conversations on Writing. Given that Ursula was, of course, a science fiction writer and a fantasy writer, but also a poet, a writer of essays and literary criticism, a translator, and much more, this new series, Crafting with Ursula, will invite a wide variety of writers to discuss Ursula's craft or her craft advice in light of their own work. This has been brewing for much of the last year and has involved the generosity and skills of so many others, whether it be Arwen Curry, the director of the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, offering some audio for the intro, or the musician Todd Barton, who for 40 years was the resident composer for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and who composed with Ursula the album Music and Poetry of the Kesh, which originally in the 80s came out as a cassette tape that accompanied the book Always Coming Home. And excerpts from this album of two tracks become the music for the intro and outro of this show. Or the incredible photography of William Anthony, whose photograph of Ursula graces the banner for the show and each episode of it, to Jacob Valla at Tin House, his graphic design for the whole thing. Much like Le Guin quietly created or sustained literary ecosystems within Oregon, the people she has touched, writers, artists, musicians, filmmakers, have returned to help make this new series possible. And I can't fail to mention the invaluable back and forth with Theo Downs Le Guin, who has been my main partner in dreaming this into being, brainstorming together how this could look. For those who are coming to this podcast for the first time because of this series, I do want to alert new listeners that beyond this monthly series, there is a wealth of science fiction and fantasy conversations within the Between the Covers archive. If you go to tinhouse.com slash podcasts, you can sort the archive by genre. If you click on SFF, you will pull up the past conversations with Ursula, but also conversations with so many others, from Jeff Vandermeer, Sophia Samatar, N.K. Jemison, Nedia Korafor, and Ted Chang, to William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, Marlon James, China Mieville, David Mitchell, Kelly Link, and Carmen Maria Machado. 
if you're a longtime listener, but perhaps not a huge science fiction and fantasy fan, you'll be surprised by the breadth of guests and topics that will be engaged on Crafting with Ursula, and also what anyone, any writer can learn about the craft of writing, even, or perhaps especially, when talking about the most fantastically imagined of things. Either way, first-time listener or long-time listener, if you enjoyed today's conversation, consider supporting the show. There are many Ursula-specific potential rewards of doing so, from rare out-of-print chapbooks that Le Guin wrote to the Locus Award-winning Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing to Dispatches from Anaris, a tribute anthology to Ursula by authors who shared the same city, from Fonda Lee and Lydia Yuknovich to Molly Gloss and Renee Denfeld. And every listener supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode, pointing you to further places to explore, the most compelling discoveries I made in preparing for the episode, and the various books or other things that were referenced during the conversation. So head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to check it all out. And now for today's conversation, the first episode of Crafting with Ursula with none other than Becky Chambers talking about creating aliens and alien cultures. The connection between what I do as a writer, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, that magic in Earthsea is word magic. Obviously, to me, words do make magic, in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after, ultimately, is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot, or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as as holding doors open, or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Today's guest, science fiction writer Becky Chambers, comes from a family deeply enmeshed in actual space travel a rocket scientist grandfather who worked on the Apollo missions and the space shuttle, an aerospace engineer father, and a mother who was an astrobiology educator. Becky has and hasn't taken a different path. She studied theater arts at the University of San Francisco and then worked in theater management and as a freelance writer before a successful Kickstarter campaign to self-publish her first novel, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, a novel that received so much critical and popular acclaim that it was republished by Harper Voyager, the sci-fi fantasy imprint of HarperCollins. 
This novel was the first of the series Becky Chambers is likely best known for, the Wayfarer series, winner of the 2019 Hugo Award for Best Series, which also includes A Closed in Common Orbit, Record of a Spaceborne Few, and The Galaxy and the Ground Within. She has since published the novella To Be Taught, If Fortunate, a book that was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Novella, the British Science Fiction Award for Best Shorter Fiction, and the Locus Award for Best Novella. And she has published the first of the two-book Monk and Robot series, A Psalm for the Wild Built with Tor Books, a book that follows the journey of a tea monk of some renown and the robot visitor who has come to pursue the answer to the question, what do humans really need? The follow-up, A Prayer for the Crown Shy, comes out later this year. NPR said of the first of the Monk and Robot books, A Psalm for the Wild Built begins a series that looks optimistic and hopeful, pursuing stories that arise from abundance instead of scarcity and kindness instead of cruelty. Sarah Gailey adds, Chambers' writing is always tender and healing, but this book has something else braided into it, something more. This is a book that, for one night, made me stop asking, what am I even for? I'm prescribing a pre-order to anyone who has ever felt lost. And Martha Wells adds, this was an optimistic vision of a lush, beautiful world that came back from the brink of disaster. I read these reviews not to single out this latest book of Becky's, but because, much like the author whose work that brings us together today, she's concerned with imagining worlds in the future that are inhabitable. In other words, she isn't solely concerned with showing us where we are headed if we don't change course, but where we could go if we did. I'm excited to welcome our first guest to this new series Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Becky Chambers. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, bef- before we talk about the topic you've chosen, creating creating alien cultures and aliens that are truly alien in both your work and Ursula's, just orient us more generally speaking to the story of Ursula Le Guin in your, in your life, when and how you encountered her work. So I first... The, the first book of hers I read was The Left Hand of Darkness, which I think is true for a lot of people. Um, when I first encountered it, I was already a massive sci-fi fan. You know, I grew up watching Star Trek and Star Wars and, and reading, you know, all the pulpy stuff that was on the bookshelf at the library. But I, I part of it was my age in that, you know, I was only in my teens, but I hadn't really started thinking critically about what I was reading yet. I liked the spaceships and I liked the aliens and it was this cool adventure. Uh, but I had a, an English teacher, my mentor, really, we were, we were close friends. And uh, she handed me The Left Hand of Darkness and said, I think you'll really like this. And it was this watershed moment for me. It, it taught me how much more science fiction was capable of, not to knock the things I was reading when I was younger, but I, I wasn't really looking at it for what they were actually saying, for the, the philosophical arguments that were in there and whatnot. I, I was so taken aback by left hand in that, you know, there's no, there's no planet that's blowing up. There's a war, but it's, it's not in the, um, 
you know, we have to save the galaxy sense. It is truly in terms of, of tragedy and struggle and sort of this lack of imagination between these two cultures. Um, and it, it made me want to write science fiction. I don't know how we would be having this conversation right now if it wasn't for that book. Um, it just moved me in, in such a profound way, at both in a personal sense, but also um, in, in how I thought about the genre, how I thought about writing, how I thought about stories work. Um, I don't think there's been anything as influential um, in my work as, as, as hers and that book in particular. Well, I want to read a quote from your essay in Lit Hub, How the Left Hand of Darkness Changed Everything which is also in your introduction to the reissue of that very book, which you wrote, quote, I can't say if I've read any science fiction written by a woman before that point, but I'd certainly never read any science fiction like that. There were no lasers, no damsels, no chosen ones. There was war, yes, but a real war, a war not for the fate of the galaxy, but for hatred and fear. There was science, too, but it wasn't the science of physics or technology. It was the science of culture, the science of bodies. These sciences were every bit as worthy, the left hand said, and writing fictions of them was powerful business. This book changed me in the sort of way that only books can do. It's the catalyst that pushed me from being a fan of science fiction to wanting to write it myself. It's the story that showed me that the science fiction I was already devouring had stuff to say if I would just stop and listen. Since we're talking about creating alien cultures, I thought we could start with this different emphasis of Le Guin's that you highlight, the science of culture and the science of bodies. T talk to us about looking at science in this way as it relates to you and or to Le Guin. Sure. I, I think um, in both real science and in science fiction, which have such a deeply symbiotic relationship, um, they definitely feed into each other. It's a, that Venn diagram is almost a circle in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there is this hierarchy of which sciences are more important, which is such a, a backwards way of looking at it, right? Because it's all important. It's all the story of us and our world. And so within science fiction, you, you know, you have this, this divide between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. And I think that it's a, it's a useful distinction only in um, expressing what your preference is as to what kind of stories and what kind of topics you, you want to dive into. Not everyone wants to read, um, you know, this, this super nitty gritty physics uh, sort of, you know, a blueprint sort of book. Here's how it would all work in a very technical way. But some people, that's their jam. That's the only thing they want to read. You know, so in that, in determining which flavor are you more into, do you like chocolate or vanilla? Um, that's where it's useful. But unfortunately, it does, and this has been true for a long time, um, there is this, this sense of, you know, hard sci-fi is the, is the real sci-fi. And soft sci-fi, you know, just it, there in the in the name, soft, you know, mm -hmm. um, and we could talk probably for the rest of this episode about all the reasons um, that's just a, um, a completely uh, wrong and and um, errant comparison to make. But I think that Le Guin um, is 
perhaps the best argument against soft science fiction isn't real science fiction because the way she approached um, not only the care with which she built those worlds, but the artistry and the poetry in which she described them. I mean, you can't find better science fiction than this. It, it, I mean, there's a reason we're still talking about her. There's a reason people are still reading her because um, she, she really was one of the masters. She was one of the greats. And so that too was, was huge for me when I was younger in terms of how I thought about it, because these were not the sort of topics, the sort of stories um, that I understood science fiction to be. You know, there, there was no physics, except for, you know, in the very, very minimal, here's how a spaceship works sense, but even then she rarely got into that. What she wanted to deep dive into was uh, anthropology and sexuality and morals. And she made it feel as real and important um, that it had the same weight as the the uh, those other fields of study. When talking about your own work and building alien cultures, you said that you try to make sure that your stories are not human centric, that humans are not the default template when you're imagining alien cultures. And you've mentioned how in Star Trek, all the species that they encounter have the same general questions as humans about marriage, about war, about religion as if humans were sort of a default template. But despite the way we act about ourselves, we aren't even really the default template on our own planet. Um, in many ways, I think the world of Left Hand of Darkness and the short story that we're also going to discuss that's in the same world, Coming of Age in Carhide, which she wrote a quarter, quarter of a century later. In a lot of ways, I, the references are human or recognizably human, the human concerns. But there is a science of the body that she brings into this culture from the non-human animal world. And it feels like this biological choice that Le Guin makes affects so much of the culture. Um, on the planet of Gethin, which has a 26-day lunar cycle, for 24 days of each month, people are not gendered. They are sexually latent and androgynous. But there's a two-day period called Kemmer, where they assume a gender and not always the same gender each month and where biologically their bodies are, are sexually attuned. So, so much of this society, culturally speaking, gets built around this biological cycle. And you too have said that when you're creating species, you often begin with biology first. Uh, so, so talk to us about that notion. Um, starting with biology and maybe um, building culture from the biological? I think that the, you know, the whole idea that, um, you know, bipedal mammals are the, are the default for, for the whole universe makes absolutely no sense. You don't have to go any farther than your own backyard to find um, dozens of species that reproduce differently um, or, or that, and that just move differently, live their lives differently. Um, and so in my own work, what I, what I typically do is start with one trait in particular. Uh, for example, my, my Aluan species in, um, in Wayfarers uh, communicate natively through color. They have chromatophores on their cheeks, uh, you know, like um, cephalopods here on earth, squid, octopus, etc. Um, they don't have vocal cords and they uh, don't have a sense of hearing. And so uh, to them, 
color is language. And so from that, you know, then I just take that and run wild with it. Then it's just, okay, so if, if color is language, if they communicate, you know, um, non-verbally by, by just looking at each other's faces, how does that affect their art and their architecture? How does that affect their clothing if they wear any? What sorts of misunderstandings are going to come up when they run into other species that do use color just decoratively or have different meanings that they've associated with it. I mean, there's a million questions you can, you can play with and all of that builds culture. If you look at everything we have built around ourselves here on earth, it is all determined by our own biology, what temperatures we find comfortable, what sort of surfaces we find comfortable, how we use our hands, um, all of it plays into that. Um, but it also is true of social constructs, not just tools. Right, and I think um, Le Guin did a, a, a very clever thing in The Left Hand of Darkness in that um, the people of Gethin are very human in a lot of ways. You know, they, 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 they look human enough, they act human enough that, you know, um, you know we can understand them to a point, you know, but there are these, these very key differences. But I think that all that does is, is highlight highlight their alienness even more and also brings out the arbitrary nature of the concepts around sex and gender that we've built for ourselves if she had instead created a species that was say you know uh these great big bugs <laughs> you know these something with exoskeletons and lots of legs and and she said you know they they change sex cyclically we would have been like sure okay it's different when it's somebody who looks like a person and talks like a person and acts like a person and in every other way is except for this one thing it makes it um stranger in some cases it could make, even make it more uncomfortable or more appealing it it highlights um the difference between us in a way that having something that is radically different, something with an exoskeleton, um, that we, we might shrug off the difference. We wouldn't be forced to get intimate with our discomfort in that difference um, unless we enter that sort of uncanny valley of this is almost like us, but not quite. And, and being with a visitor who's bewildered by this difference seems to also highlight the difference too. Absolutely. Um, and this is this is one of the things I was I was hoping to discuss um, regarding the short story uh, coming of age of Carhide, as long as I'm not jumping ahead, if that's if it's yeah. OK. We're going to discuss this story in the same world, written from an entirely different point of view and with an entirely different narrative sensibility. So tell us why coming of age of, in Carhide was something that in particular you wanted to center today. So I think in terms of, you know, this being a discussion about, about craft and how, how to build these things, if you take the left hand of darkness and you take coming of age in car head, you put them on the table next to each other, you have this, this perfect case study in two different techniques in how to introduce the reader to an alien world, to an alien culture. Um, in The Left Hand of Darkness, and this is something I do in my own work, this is something a lot of people do, um, we have an outsider who is our viewpoint into this world. It's classic for a reason. It's really, really efficient and um, I hesitate to say easy, but it's, it's just a very accessible way um, for the reader to be learning this world along with the protagonist. Um, it makes it more comfortable. It makes it easier. It, it 
from a writing standpoint, it means you don't have to, you know, go through the laborious task of figuring out how to entertainingly explain to the reader um, something that already everybody already knows, right? Um, this place is weird to the protagonist. It's also weird to you. You're going on this journey hand in hand. Um, and so th those are the strengths of having outsider as narrator. The drawbacks to that are exactly what you just mentioned regarding um, Genli in, in The Left Hand of Darkness, in that he's uncomfortable with a lot of this. He does a, an admirable job of, of admitting his discomfort and his his biases, like he, he's very upfront about that. Um, and he tries to just sort of explain to you in a very scientific way what's going on, but he is also honest about, there's a lot about this that he is grappling with and that he's not quite comfy with. And some things about it, the longer that he's there really frustrate him, which um, as somebody in an international family, I find deeply relatable. You know, if you spend a lot of time with people who aren't like yourself, it does reach a point where you're just like, you're all crazy and I'm so tired of this. Um, so that's that's one approach, right? Coming of age in Carhide um, takes the the alternate route, um, which again has its pros and cons. Um, Coming of Age in Carhide is written by a native of Gethin, um, you know, somebody who is brought up within this culture, who is a product of this culture. Um, and they're writing this, this memoir about um, their first time going through Kemmer, about their adolescence. Um, and it's a very beautiful story. And it's a very simple story. It's just, here's this little piece of my culture I want to share with you through the, the lens of it being a memory that's very precious to them. Um, and it does a few things. One is that it, it erases the discomfort, right? There's nothing weird about this, even though the story writes about some things that within our own culture would be considered taboo or uncomfortable. If Genli was talking about this story, he would probably have very different things to say about it than, than the narrator does. Um, but none of that is there. This feels familiar and normal, even though it is not at all a familiar and normal story simply because it's being told by somebody who doesn't know anything else. And that they also in there express their own discomfort and revulsion about humans as well. And just sort of like, oh, their bodies are weird and et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that forces you as the reader to examine the arbitrariness of, of discomfort and of um, you know, what we consider to be to be normal or correct behavior. Um, but the other side of that is that it does make you a little uncomfortable sometimes, even though this is a beautiful story. I think it's a story I really love, but um, you know, there are there are aspects of it that that do make me pull back a little bit and go, whoa, okay. Um, but that's good, I think. That sort of um that sort of story lends itself really well to uh, a lot of deep diving on the on the reader's part to really interrogate why they're feeling that way about this situation. Um, so these are very different techniques and they they, they bring about a very different um, a very different mood in the story. And I think deciding which way you want to go about it um, is really just a a matter of what sort of story you want to tell. I've used both in my own work as well. Um, and it depends on, do I want to challenge the reader here? Do I want to ease them in a little, a little more gently? Do I want them to feel uncomfortable? Um, 
And I think it's really great that we have these two examples from the same setting um, that you can line up side by side and see, see how these, this, this is a completely different experience and all you've done is change where the narrator is from. Well, I, I want to talk about why I love this story in relation to the novel and about the 25 years between these two pieces. But as a preface to that, I, I, I want to read a line from The Left Hand of Darkness first, which goes, it was from the difference between us, not from the affinities and likenesses, but from the difference that that love came. And it was itself the bridge, the only bridge across what divided us. For us to meet sexually would be for us to meet once more as aliens. We had touched in the only way we could touch. So there was a um, international group exhibition in the UK several years ago called Seized by the Left Hand that I learned about from a past guest on Between the Covers, the poet C.A. Conrad. And when they were on the show, I learned that they had participated in this exhibition. And as part of the, the bonus audio archive that we have for the show, they read from this cross-genre piece that they had created, which was part essay and part poetry, and it was called Memories of Why I Stopped Being a Man. And I, in preparation for today, I, I returned to this exhibition just to look at some of the other writings that were generated out of it. And the one that really captivated me, which looked at um, the various ways Le Guin has engaged with this world, apparently there was a, a story, which I haven't read, that predates the novel also, um, and then the story that we're talking about today. But there was a chapbook by the, an artist Tuesday... Smiley or Smiley, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. That was a transfeminist critique of the left hand of darkness. And in it, it looks at how, how much of a transformative and landmark book this book is and was, but also how it received a lot of criticism from day one. Um, some of it was regressive, uh, criticism like she cites uh, Stanislaw Lamb as being unsettled by the very notion of gender fluidity itself. But some of it came from the left, like Joanna Russ saying that the book read as masculine, and others suggesting that the way the interactions happened during Kemmer reinforced heteronormativity. Um, and there's, there's many critiques that have happened, but what I really loved about this chapbook was something else because this chapbook wasn't ultimately a critique of Ursula Le Guin. Um, Ursula in the 70s and 76, she writes a, an essay called Is Gender Necessary? which engages with these critiques um, that Tuesdays uh, found to be defensive in, in, in nature. But what I love about this analysis is that um, 12 years later, Ursula writes uh, an update of this essay called Is Gender Necessary Redux? But instead of erasing the essay, she preserves the original essay in its entirety, but annotates it, showing her shifting positions over time. And similarly, I think this short story, written a quarter of a century after the novel, it doesn't erase or distance herself from the book but enters its world and expands and, and complicates it further. So Ursula says in the intro to this short story, 
This time I didn't have an honest but bewildered male Terran alongside to confuse my perceptions. I could listen to an open-hearted Gethenian who, unlike Estraven, had nothing to hide. And being with the Gethenians and going into a camera house with a teenager about to camera for the first time, we see very explicitly not just gender fluidity in order to reproduce, but for pleasure, both homosexual and heterosexual uh, sexual activity and all that is non-monogamous and consensual. And this chapbook suggests that it's Ursula's public auto-critique that is a modeling of a creative practice as a radical tool, that a radical imagination isn't necessarily one that creates an unassailable text, but one that is willing to engage with the text in relationship to the community and the readership. And this feels to me like the thing that I've always gravitated to around Le Guin. I know this is a long preamble to my question, but but it's it's really at the heart of what I love about her. It feels like the, a gift um, is much more than a correct text is um, this notion of being in an ongoing, evolving relationship with both the text itself and with the people who are also engaging with the text. Um, so if we go back to the quote from the novel, it was from the difference between us, not from the affinities and likenesses, but from the difference that that love came and it was itself the bridge, the only bridge across what divided us. If we think of love coming from difference and that difference is the bridge, in a way I think we could argue that the Gathenians aren't the only ones alien to each other in Kemmer, but they, we are also aliens to each other. And that in a way, Le Guin being beholden to the community within which she wrote across time and also across space, where she's both bold enough to imagine something, but also humble enough to hear feedback across difference and then folding that feedback into story and creating space for other people's imaginations or capacity to imagine within her stories. To me, that feels like love, but it also feels like maybe this is something about the science of culture making. And I don't know if this is even a question, but I felt like I just had to like shoehorn that, that all in there because it's something that, that I've never really had the opportunity to, to, um, to present to someone who also has thought so much about Le Guin. So much of that resonates with me so strongly um, because that line in particular does really feel, I mean, who, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm committing a cardinal sin here because I know that we shouldn't, as an author myself, that you should never do this, but it does feel like she's speaking directly to the reader in that moment rather than telling the story. I don't know if she was, but, um, but that's how it feels because it, 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 that line to me sums up so much that is true about her work in general, you know, it's not, I mean, it is textually about sexual connection between strangers, but if it, you can apply that to everything in her work is this love letter to difference and the weirdness of culture. And we are all aliens to each other all the time. And we are all just scrambling 
to understand ourselves with whatever time that we have and we will never get it right. And we are always building on top of these things. Um, that's true of the characters in her work. And if you look at the body of her work, that's clearly true of her as well. She was never a writer who got it right. Who does? There is no such thing as like this one perfect text that we can all point to forever. Uh, books are always a product, uh, any art is a product of the time in which it's written and the artist changes. And you can see through her stories and again, holding these two next to each other, that there was a lot of growth and thought and um, not in a way where she divorced herself from the original text, but, but where it was clear that she evolved. She had to hang on to the original text because it was still part of how we got there. You know, a lot of the conversations, the modern conversations about the left hand of darkness are that, you know, it was a book written in 1969 um, and it's very much of that time. For the time it was radical, it was groundbreaking. Nowadays, within the context of, um, you know, the, the conversations we have around gender and sexuality, it's, it's not as radical as it once was, but we wouldn't be having the conversations we're having now without that book, without that door being kicked open. And I think that's clear in everything she wrote, that it was always building on top of each other um, and that she saw it as just, just part of the process of, of being a writer, being an author is listening and is growing, that anything else would be stagnancy. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, a, that's something that um, is very important to me in, in my work as well. And it's definitely a lesson I learned from her. Well, one of the times Ursula was on the podcast, she talked about how the left hand of darkness, st she felt was still a hero's journey. And perhaps that was a nod to the Joanna Russ critique, I don't know. But something that she more and more later on in her career tried to deconstruct in her novels, I think perhaps most notably Always Coming Home, which was polyvocal and different types of texts coming together. Um, and, and there was no hero. Um, and interestingly, in the intro to the short story, she says, this time I didn't have a damned plot. I could ask questions. I could see how the sex works. I could finally get into a camera house. I could really have fun, which suggests the subtext of this is there's something about this inherited form or this inherited expectation of a, of a, a story of the hero that perhaps when you kick that away, different things can happen. But it also reminded me of what I quoted of you from your essay, there were no lasers, no damsels, no chosen ones. The The short story going further by by changing the story structure, by removing a hero altogether. Um, one one of the things that you've said that that Ursula showed you was that quiet stories can be every bit as compelling as louder ones. And I'd love to hear about that in relationship to your writing. I'm thinking of a description of your debut novel, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. There was an article at Polygon called 15 Recent Sci-Fi Books That Forever Shaped the Genre that highlighted your debut and your interest in interpersonal dynamics and how and why um, communities work. And then I think even more so of, of your latest series, which is animated by 
what could be thought of as the simplest or perhaps the most complex question, but certainly a quiet and contemplative question, what exactly do humans need? Um, talk, talk to us about quiet stories or her, or this notion that she had in that, in that introduction of, I don't have the damn plot. I can finally ask questions. I will die on the hill, and this is a heretical hill, and I'm aware of this, that plot is not as important as people think. And I know that, that, you know, people gasp at that and clutch their pearls, et cetera, because we are taught that plot is everything, right? It's all about, um, you know, this very structured plot. It's all about the three-act structure. It's all about raising the stakes and et cetera, et cetera. These are all useful tools, and you should know how they work and how to use them and when to use them. Uh, as a writer, but you don't have to use them. I, I, in all things in my life, bulk when somebody tells me it has to be like X. No, it doesn't. <laughs> There's there, there are no absolutes. Um, plot works for a reason. There's a reason most stories have a plot because it's compelling. It draws you in and there's forward motion, etc. To me, though, plot is just one component of many that you can mix in. And the most important question you can actually ask is, does the reader find this interesting? Are they compelled to continue reading? Are they enjoying this experience? That's that's the question. And if you can do that without a plot or without much of a plot or with just the barest whisper of a plot, you can use any structure you want. You can do anything so long as the reader is listening and the reader is thinking and it's something that, that resonates with them. I started experimenting with that in my own work and have have really doubled down on it because of the lessons I learned from Le Guin. Um, when I first started writing The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, it's one of these things that's funny in hindsight because you know you, you mentioned the quote of mine about you know there were no lasers, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when I was, even though that was the science fiction, that was you know the kinds of stories that made me want to write it. When I started writing my own, it took me years before I really felt confident enough to put it out there because I had this notion of this isn't a real book. This isn't a real book because um, because there are no lasers. There's no planets blowing up. I don't have a MacGuffin. There's no like big heroes or anything. This isn't a real book. And um, I, I got hung on up on this for so long until at some point I just, uh, you know, gave myself this counter argument of, but you love Le Guin. Like, and specifically, I was thinking about this book, Changing Planes, which I'd love to dig into later. Um, but I was like, but don't you love those stories? Don't you love those kinds of stories? What happens in those stories? Not a lot, a lot of the time. They're these very, very quiet stories. And if you like those, all right, this book isn't on par with that, but don't you want more stories like that in the world? And, and so loving her stuff was what gave me the courage to go out there. And uh, I get a little, a little bolder with it every year into how much nothing I can get away with. <laughs> but I do it, but I do it very intentionally because life doesn't have a plot. Life doesn't have a plot, yeah. but life is interesting. You know, um, there was nothing noteworthy about what I did last Saturday, but it's still something I'm thinking about. And it's something that's on my mind. You know, it was an interesting day, even if it was a boring one, you know, and I, I think that's, that's something I am constantly trying to improve on in my own work and trying to find new ways of tackling in my own work is how do I take the mundane um, and turn it into what feels like the most important story? Um, how do I take something that is, is 
completely every day and that no one will remember and make you understand that for this character, this is something that's going to change their life. You know, um, that's that's the question I think I, I'll never get tired of asking. I love that. Well, as a setup for my next question, I'm, I'm going to quote you again from, from the same essay. Um, so this is you. I long to be Gethedian. As a closeted kid growing up Catholic in a conservative town, the idea that sex and gender had no default templates in nature was a life-saving epiphany. Imagine a society without sexual shame, without double standards, without rape, Imagine a world in which everyone has a monthly biological cycle that you get time off for, no questions asked. Imagine families in which you can be mother and father both. Now imagine the difficulty of being a person from our world dropped into the middle of that and tasked with building a cultural bridge. Our narrator is the first to admit his shortcomings on that front. Genley knows he needs to unpack his biases, he spends the entire book trying to do just that. In turn, the book helped me to do the same. In light of this quote, and of a culture without rape or sexual shame, I wanted to ask you and talk about optimism and about envisioning better futures. Um, because perhaps the most optimistic thing in Left Hand of Darkness, in addition to the gender-specific imaginings, is that the envoy, our, our protagonist, who comes to Gethin with his limited imagination, uh, his flawed imagination about gender, he isn't there for commerce or to start a war or for a military alliance, but he's simply there for the open exchange of knowledge between people. And, and you yourself have talked about how you write the universes you want to live in. So for instance, books of yours where no one is labeled by gender or sexual orientation. There's no coming out because these questions of identity are incidental and matter of fact, um, simply matters of individual choice. And your latest series is a solar punk series. And it's a solar punk being a subgenre of science fiction that probably the sci-fi readers who are listening already are familiar with, but I'm guessing that others might not have heard of. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could orient our listeners to solar punk, but also more generally to questions of envisioning, if not utopian futures, um, creating stories of things going right um, or where certain things have gone right that are baked into the story. Um, but also how, and this maybe connects to this idea of writing quiet stories too, how you move narrative forward when you're not using wars or kidnapped damsels as the engine for plot. Solar punk is, is something that uh, speaks to me on multiple levels. It was one of those things where I discovered it when I discovered it, um, you know, already out there and existing and thriving. I was like, ah, yes, this, this is, this is what I'm looking for. Um, so solar punk is, in so many ways, the antithesis to cyberpunk, right? Cyberpunk being a high-tech dystopian future, um, very, you know, it's typically corporate controlled or you have, you know, sort of these ruthless government overlords, either either one will do. Um, you have people, you know, living in these um, often disgusting urban environments who are, um, 
working as best as they can to to find a semblance of freedom within the system or to break free of the system or bring the system down. Um, a, a very classic tale of dystopian struggle and rebellion, right? But ultimately very bleak. Like there's, I've, I've, maybe it's out there, but I have yet to read a, a, a cheerful, <laughs> a cheerful cyberpunk story. Um, Solarpunk, on the other hand, is um, also a high-tech future, but a renewable one, a regenerative one, one that centers itself around sustain, not just sustainable technology, but a uh, sustainable culture, one that is built around, um, if not a full utopia, you know, utopian ideals of, of cooperation and collaboration. Uh, it's often very anarchist or uh, socialist in flavor. Um, you have these, these communal societies, you have a lot of solar power and wind power, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a future in which we either avoided the end of the world or rebuilt something that will actually last. Um, and, you know, as, as with all things with the suffix punk, it's got its own aesthetic to it as well. But the, the core of it is, you know, what if technology is not the enemy? What if technology is just a tool and we get to choose what we, what sort of tools we build and how we use them. And, and so that's the, the, the very short version of, of what encompasses solar punk. Um, and, to, to me, it's just um, a sandbox I, I really wanted to play in because with all of my work, um, as, as, as you quoted, I, I am interested in futures that offer hopeful alternatives, um, which is not to say my futures are perfect. I, I very intentionally make them not so. They are, they are flawed and they are messy and there are places in them I would not want to go. But I think it's extremely important to show people alternatives um, to break us of the, um, th that sort of defeatist thinking, which is no one's fault, but the defeatist thinking that um, this is all there is and it's going to inevitably end in tragedy. I like to tell stories about, well, what if we chose something else? What if we put in a concerted effort to making sure it didn't end up that way? And even if it does end up that way, okay, what, what are we working toward after that, what, because you can't just struggle for survival's sake alone, right? There has to be something you're working toward. Um, I try to offer options as to, to what that might be. Um, and that too is something that um, I, I took from McGlynn's work as well. Like Left Hand was such a, an oasis in the desert when I was growing up and coming of age in Carhide as well. I didn't have to wait 25 years to read that story you know, because I was, I was born a, a good number of years later. Um, you know, when I found it on the shelf at the library, you know, um, being a teenager, um, dealing with growing up queer, feeling isolated, feeling alone, and reading this story about this world in which no one has to feel that way. I remember reading it with such a sense of longing and, you know, an almost, it was almost bittersweet to me in a way because I wanted it so badly. Um, but at the same time, it gave me hope. It made me think, what if it didn't have to be like this? And even though I was stuck there, I couldn't go anywhere else yet. I was still a kid. Just the thought that that glimmer of it could be different elsewhere, um, you know, that was enough of a handhold 
some days to be able to to keep myself from getting stuck and keep myself from getting somewhere really dark, you know. And I think that that's that's what the the, the power of escapist fiction is, and of science fiction and fantasy and all of it is that it allows you to escape. And we think of that as um, a childish sort of thing, but it's not. Um, in, a, in a lot of cases, it's it's survival and it's something really vital. Um, and that's what Le Guin did for me with a lot of her books. Um, it wasn't just the fact that she, you know, uh, pointed me toward the career I wanted to have and and made me fall in love with the genre a different way. And it, even if I had never written a single book um, or read anything else, I'm, her books really saved me in a way. And um, I think of my own work as um, it, trying to pay that forward um, a lot of the time of I, I want as best as I can to um, to do for other people through my work what she did for me. Well, you mentioned earlier a, a story collection that you wanted to talk about further. Is is that also Changing Planes? Is that also a, a collection that was part of that, um, creating a space and a, a sense of longing and a, a portal of escape? It was in a, in a different sort of way. Um, Changing Planes is one of my favorite books forever. Um, I, it's It's my comfort read. Um, but it's one when I write, when I say that to people, I always follow it up with a caveat of this might not be your jam, you know, because it is kind of a, a weird book. And I say that with love, but it's, it reads more like, um, like a nonfiction travelogue or a memoir than a story. Most of the, the, the stories in this book have no plot whatsoever. It's just, it's just a description of these people and what they were like. And I love it so much. I have loved it from, from the first time I picked it up in that uh, the, the whole concept of the book is that if you allow yourself to get bored enough and a little bit physically uncomfortable, you have the ability to slip into other dimensions and go visit places. Um, and I think that's just such a wonderful metaphor for how um, the creative process works and how imagination works. Um, and so it's just, that's the only thing that links these stories are here are these, these places the narrator went. And, um, and appropriately, I actually bought my first copy of this book in an airport, which is funny if you actually read the book, because she says that one of the best places to use this method is in an airport because you're uncomfortable and bored. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so it actually was this uh, travel companion for me for years. I would often, if I was getting on a plane, put, put changing planes in my backpack, even if I didn't plan on reading it, just because I, I liked having it around. Um, but it was, it was such a a wonderful thought, aside from just the, the, the stories themselves, which are um, fascinating and some of them are hilarious and some of them are disturbing. Um, but it's it's just this little, um, this little journey around the universe in this very slim volume. And uh, through the years, whenever, whenever I just sort of need to wrap myself up in a blanket of a book, this is it. Because isn't it a wonderful idea that you can just close your eyes and go somewhere else? Um, yeah, I mean, to me, that's just an absolute balm of an idea that um, that you don't have to stay here if you don't want to. If you need to escape, you can. Is that story, The Ire of the Vexy, is that from that book? Yes, it is. Um, the Ire of the Vexy is a funny one to highlight because it really is just this sort of proof of concept. It's just this description of the species and, and how they act. 
Um, but it's one of the ones that springs to mind whenever I think about how do I make aliens feel alien. The Ira of the Vexi is about this species called the Vexi, of course, um, who exists primarily through rage. Like that, that's their primary emotion and their driver in everything. And I, I remember this story really bothering me the first time I read it because it, it just felt like, what is the point of it? Like, <laughs> what's the point of this story? Why? And yet it's one that's stuck in my head ever since I read, first read it, um, there's this description in there of a, a funeral in which um, an elder member of this community has died. And the way that the Vexi express their grief isn't through sorrow or fond remembrance, it's through rage and not rage at the concept of death or at their feeling of loss. It's rage at the deceased. And they curse this person and they, you know, they throw stones and they like, it's, it's, it's ugly and it's uncomfortable. And they do this until they're exhausted, like physically exhausted. Um, it's, it's not pleasant to read or think about. And that's exactly why it stuck with me because there is no conclusion to this story. There is no moral, there is no, um, you know, sort of mirror that, that, that she's holding this culture up against. It's just, hey, here are these people and this is how they do. What do you think about that? And I have been trying for, I don't know, 15 years to feel, to figure out how I think about that um, because it made me so uncomfortable. And I, and that, that to me is such a, a great little trick, especially because it's such a short story. And again, it's just, this very bare bones description of these people. And yet it's something that really got under my skin. And so many of the stories in this book are like that, where it's just, here's an idea. Here's a little seed I'm going to plant. Um, and she gives you the space to think about that on, on your own. Uh, as within so much of her work, she really respects the intelligence of the reader to draw their own conclusions um, and doesn't really lead you to one thing or the other. Um, there's this sense in this book that she just, she just wants to challenge um, what you consider to be the everyday template. What's, what's interesting for me, and maybe it's the part that when you said some of the, these stories are hilarious and some of them are disturbing, it feels like this one is hilarious and disturbing because yes, there's a lot, at least I come to this, to this idea of a society based on anger and revenge as having other elements to it, which this society doesn't have. Like there's no social dominance. There's no hierarchy. Um, they don't accumulate wealth. They don't destroy each other's fields when they raid different towns. Like all these things that I would think were would be part of the angry society um, are not part of the angry society. Um, I'm just going to read a really uh, funny paragraph from that story before we, we move to something else. But the Vexi are rigid monotheists. Their God is conceived as the force of destruction against which no creature can long stand. To them, existence is a rebellion against law. Human life is a brief defiance of inevitable doom. The stars themselves are mere sparks in the fire of annihilation. Names of God in various vexy rituals and chants are Ender, Vast Devastator, Ineluctable Hoof, Waiting Void, Rock That Smashes Brain. It's just so great. It's so great. It's so grim and it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I, I wanted to return to science again, especially because you mentioned mm -hmm. when solar punk that solar punk 
maybe contrary to what people might first presume, is high tech. So it's not a return to the land necessarily in a pre-industrial way. Um, we have high tech science that is, but it's all pointed, those tools are pointed towards a sustainable, uh, renewable future. But if we're talking about, so we, we've talked about the science of culture and bodies, but the science of technology and physics, the left hand of darkness is a pretty low tech world. Um, there is the Ansible, the communication device, um, and there's the envoy visiting from another world. But mainly we're in a pretty low tech world. And I'm thinking of one of, one of my conversations with Ursula about her poetry, where we were um, talking about poetry in relationship to science, but also the differences for her between extractive, high-resource technologies and quieter ones. And at one point, she called the kitchen knife a, a perfect technology. And, and she has these wonderful poems about tools, particularly about tools that last us throughout a lifetime and are even shaped over that life by our use of them, and they are passed down through generations. Um, poems like the small Indian pestle at the Applegate house, where the objects, the objects that she considers technologies, they end up getting subjectified through our interactions with them. And it makes me think of your relatively recent conversation with Sarah Gailey about your latest book, A Psalm for the Wild Built, not only that you are aiming to collapse oppositional binaries between science and religion and between nature and technology, but when Gailey pointed out that you made technologies in this world endure, that these technologies in, in this world um, lasted, unlike so many of the ones in our world, it sparked this, it sparked this really interesting conversation about the types of technologies you imagine. And you talked in response to her question about your six-year-old laptop full of toxic, precious metals, which we could just as equally say about our phones and how you know it probably wasn't supposed to last much longer and that you wanted to create a relationship with such things that was the opposite of the one that we have now. So a relationship where something that was created with a non-renewable, non-abundant substance, which a metal that is precious by definition qualifies as, and on top of that, a metal that is toxic. And I'd also add metals that have often been mined by child slave labor. And on top of that, that mining is one of the main reasons we've been at an increased risk for global pandemics for the last 25 years or more. Um, if we really engage with these metals as the precious things that they are, that are non-renewable, we should be creating technologies with them that endure and last. Um, so I, I'm putting words in your mouth now, but talk to us about your own relationship to technologies extractive and otherwise in narrative and your considerations around building cultures using these technologies. I mean, I think it's everything that you just said. It's so backwards, isn't it? That the things we throw away are things that we absolutely should not because they're poisonous and because they took so much effort um, and suffering usually 
to gain in the first place. Um, and that there's something we can't grow back, you know, and, and we treat them like, you know, like they're nothing. I've probably thrown away a bunch of pieces of plastic today without really thinking twice about it, even though I'm talking about it right now. Um, and so this idea that if you are going to use uh, non-renewable resources, you treat them like the precious dangerous object that they are. Uh, so in the world of, of Psalm for the Wild Built, um, a, a common coming of age gift is uh, your pocket computer, which is, yeah, it's essentially a smartphone, but it's your pocket computer. And it's meant to last you your entire life. Um, and some of these items are heirlooms that are handed down and you can get them repaired, you know, you can get new parts for them, et cetera, but it is, it is meant to last and it is a sentimental object. And it's one that's precious not just for its utility but also because you understand that the comforts and the conveniences that it gives you had a cost um and that that's not something you throw away things that you do throw away um in that setting that the world there is called panga so things you do throw away on panga um are things that you can grow back you know you can print um a 3d printing out of um pectin or, um, you know, uh, like uh, things made out of mycelium, et cetera, things that will decompose. It's a very common way for them to make tools um, or, or objects or trinkets or things that they wear. Um, things that they, that will break and that they will throw away um, have to be things that you literally could just throw off the side of the road and something will eat it. You know, something will break it down. Um, because that's, to me, that's just, sensible you know from, from where we sit in our society I am surrounded by precious metals and like extractive things right now it seems impossibly radical and yet um obviously I'm biased but if you sit around and think about it that that's that is how it should be if you're not going to use it it should be able to return to the ecosystem from whence it came um so a, a lot of um, those sorts of considerations went into my world building for Panga. And I wanted to make it as casual as possible. Within that book, I am using, um, you know, the aforementioned technique of we're following this through the, the eyes of somebody who um, has always lived there and knows some, nothing different. Um, because I didn't want it to feel radical. I didn't want to have, you know, an outsider coming in and introducing this and being like, wow, look at this fantastic world. Um, to sibling Dex, the protagonist of the story, um, this is just how life works. And I wanted the reader to feel like this could be normal. This doesn't have to be a fantasy. This doesn't have to be something that blows your mind. This could just be your everyday. Um, and so that's, that's why the sort of mundanity of the objects I focus on in that book and also um, the way in which I described them was very intentionally, I just wanted it to feel normal and touchable and not worth remarking on. I wanted to ask, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you one more time. In relationship to exploration, um, I'm thinking first of, of how Ursula was coming out of the era of 1950s space colonization um, science fiction, I'm thinking like Asimov. Um, and I'm wonder, I even wonder, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if having a stand in who's a bewildered male visitor who has more issues when the Gathenians are women than when they're men is, is 
if her imagined audience at that time was maybe the the male dominated science fiction reader coming out of the coming out of the 50s or not um and how she she said at the beginning she couldn't imagine at the time when she wore Earthsea, a female wizard. But then just like she did with Coming of Age of Carhide, later she wrote work that looked at the obstacles put in the way of, of women becoming wizards. But um, this is my long way of, of the ways in which I think her quiet, non-plot-driven um, narratives, or even having um, Genley come not because of trade, are going against this trope of exploration as colonization. Um, So here's your quote. Um, All our stories about space, be they real or fictional, are about the elite, the scientific elite, the military elite, the intellectual elite. We don't see real people. To be taught came out of that. Here's how we could do this differently. Here's a different option. What if we got back to exploration for exploration's sake? And so you've you've done something similar. I mean, you started in space opera, which I think has a trope of colonization as as part of it, mm-hmm. and you worked against it in a way that I think Le Guin ultimately did. Um, but in terms of exploration for exploration's sake, I know you have the second book of the Monk and Robot series coming out, but. What's what what what's the edge of your what's the horizon of your exploration now? You know, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because this is actually um, largely not largely. There were a lot of different reasons why I decided I was going to stop writing Wayfarers with the fourth book, uh, The Galaxy and the Ground Within. Um, and it was a difficult decision to make because it was a, a setting I've I worked really hard on and I'm very proud of. Um, and have obviously, you know, I care a lot about it, but it was also a world that I built when I was, we started building when I was 20 years old and, you know, I'm in, I'm in my mid thirties now, and that's a long time to, um, hang out in one place. And also I have changed a lot. And a lot of my assumptions about, um, what science fiction is, what space opera could be, um, have, have been growing along with me. When I first wrote um, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet and built the galactic commons within that, I was trying to subvert what I saw that the classic uh, space opera template to be. I very intentionally built a, um, a, in a lot of ways, a very cut and dry uh, space opera setting in which you have, you know, this grand galactic government and you have all these, you know, these political things going on, all these big machinations, but they're all happening in the background. I I often thought of just flipping the camera around somewhere. The actual protagonist of the story is having an adventure, but we're just seeing the people who are walking through the spaceport behind them. Um, That was the original impetus for for Wayfarers. Um, But as I progressed with it, and, and in recent years, I found myself sort of getting stuck in the world building I had already done because I'm writing within a series and you know, if I, if I change things at this stage, I will get letters and, you know, nobody wants that. <laughs> um, so, um, so when I wrote The Galaxy in the Ground Within, it really was this conversation with my younger self about the problems I saw within my own universe 
and the things I no longer agreed with in the world building. And one of the things that, uh, one of the questions I, I currently am very interested in exploring and answering and do not have a good answer to yet. So come back in a few years and we'll see how I got on. But um, can, can you... Can you tell a story that still feels like space opera and move remove colonialism from it entirely? Um, Wayfarers is post-colonial. There's a lot of sentiment in there that is anti-colonial. I think that comes across, but does it even have to be a, something that's in there in the first place? Can we avoid that step altogether? Does it always have to start with um, manifest destiny and let's go plant a flag on the planet somewhere? What if we had, um, a galactic presence, a, an, an interstellar community that didn't start that way, where alliances between worlds aren't driven by trade and where that concept wouldn't even occur to people. You know, I, I think that um, the sandbox I built was good, but I'm interested in a different one now. And I'm, I'm really, really interested in um, removing the barriers that we, that we think of as intrinsic ingredients. Um, within space opera and seeing if they're even necessary at all. Um, because once again, I, I always like to figure out which rules I can break. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's where I'm at right now. I, I um, you know, I handed in um, a prayer for the crown shy a few months ago. And since then I've been, I've been working on a new novel that um, is very alien and is very weird. And I am, um, I am embracing the discomfort that that I like so much in, in the stories we've talked about today. Um, and I don't know where that's going to head yet, but that's that's part of the fun. Well, you were the perfect person to kick off the series with. I'm so glad we spent this time together today, Becky. Likewise, this has been a wonderful chat, and, and I really appreciate you bringing me here today. We we're talking today to Becky Chambers. Um, you've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Becky Chambers' work can be found at otherscribbles.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner, Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer at Tin House for publicity, 
and Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula K. Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Kesh. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Mm-hmm.